Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. This episode, we start off by taking a look at how widespread poverty and housing difficulties have become and why one city had to completely backtrack on a bylaw that basically made it illegal to help out the needy. It's also been 10 years since the 2013 Calgary flood that saw the Bow River rise over 5 meters in some regions, displace thousands, and cost millions in damage. We dive into what it was like with an emergency physician and climate activist, and if Alberta has improved emergency preparedness, just in case it happens again. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. Do you feel like there's more people that you know that are finding themselves close to, if not actually in a homeless situation, feeling, you know, experiencing homelessness as a result of, you know, not enough of a wage, maybe, you know, not being well, ending up in hospital, losing a job, um, you know, have never coming out of the pandemic with, you know, their industry back up and running. I know a lot of people in the in the food service industry weren't, weren't able to go back to it for, for many reasons. Well, the conversation I'm having right now for this next little bit is about this overlooked and ignored group of people, right? So, for example, her, her name is Rosemary. And after rent, phone, internet, laundry, transit, and costs to take care of her pet, she's a 57-year-old widow. And all she has left at the end of the month is $150. So what do you think? Do you think that, you know, the people that we see, in at least in your mind, that you see as homeless um, really fit the, the bill as, as to the type of person you expect? If there's such a thing, someone that you would expect that might be homeless or you're starting to realize that there are people like you and me that are just a little down on their luck, right? Anyway, go back to Rosemary here for a minute. She's a recipient of $1,300 a month. Uh, she lives in Ontario, so she benefits from the Ontario Disability Support Program. And the leftover money is meant to cover everything else, right? Including her groceries and uh, and things like the special milk that she needs because of, she's got some food allergies and any kind of surprise expenses. She says, there's always something coming up, desperate needs that need to be addressed when you don't expect them. And all I got left at the end of the month is $150 to deal with it. So there's all, you know, during the pandemic, she lost her job. She had a contract job making uh, or marking literacy tests with the Education Quality and Accountability Office. And her Canada Pension Plan's survivor's pension ends up being clawed back because of her ODSP money, her Ontario Disability money. So, you know, she's at the end of the month, she's just not making enough, nor really anyone at $1,300 a month is not making enough to, to really live. And it's ending up leaving people, needless to say, on the streets or certainly in a shelter environment. So the demographic has the highest rate of poverty in the country, that particular demographic, right? According to the Canadian uh, Food Centers uh, Canada uh, survey, more than one in five living below the poverty line. More than one in five people. That's 20% of the people that are living below the poverty line. These are the people that are falling between these cracks, right? You want to talk about it, give me a call here, 877-399-9898. You started to notice the people on the street asking for money or living rough, living rough are people that you might have you know, seen 
at the local Canadian Tire working someday or another store, some kind, you know, some kind of retail job, or maybe somebody you knew what might have been a teacher at one point, a little down on their luck. So it's a group that generally is overlooked and ignored, according to the CEO, Nick Saul. He's the CEO of uh, Community Food Centers Canada. Uh, they're showing up in our community centers and good food organizations in droves. Uh, there's a missing middle in the income support system in Canada. The eight singles uh, adult ages 18 to 64. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is according to uh, this man, uh, Nick Saul, right? He's the CEO of the uh, uh, Food Centers Canada, Community Food Centers Canada. There's a sense that people, if, if people are thinking, right? So the idea is if you get a job, you'll be okay. Well, the reality is that's not enough. Depends on who you are and the kind of job. And if it's minimum wage, it's just not enough. I mean, if you're a kid living at home, or it's a, it's a second job and it's complementing or, 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 or it's augmenting the other job that you have. Like a person cannot survive on $15 an hour, certainly in Ontario, uh, $15 an hour uh, on, a, on an average 40-hour week uh, unless they're, you know, co-oping with somebody and sharing rent. Like it's just not enough for a single individual to be able to survive, right? I mean, it's just, you know, they can... You have to decide, especially as you get older, you have to decide between your medication and your food. You heard that story a million times, right? So the, the report, according to the Canadian Food Centers Canada um, survey, according to their report, low-wage sectors of the economy are self-employment, temp jobs, part-time work have all become the norm, right? People are, are they just can't get the jobs that they're looking for. And when they do find a job, that's insufficient hours, reduced hours, uh, fewer benefits, limited pensions, and fluctuations in pay depending on where you go and and the job that you you know you try out for so to speak so at the end of the day what we're talking about here really is that there are a whole host of people in a middle age range who are for whatever, whatever reason not making enough money or a, not able to be in the workforce and according to the woman uh, that we were talking about in the beginning of the of the show rosemary right we were talking about rosemary um, who was little you know was Ontario disability. She had a decent job and then she fell, you know, she, she, she kind of lost it uh, as a result of the pandemic. They cut it back. Um, not for anything she did, according to the article, right? Uh, let's listen to what Steve from Winnipeg has to say. Hey, Steve, how you doing? Hello there. Um, uh, I, have, I too have a friend who's going through very hard times. Uh, he's a senior citizen. He lost his house. His wife passed away during the uh, uh, COVID, the outbreak of the COVID, and he's living now in his car yeah. right now as, as, as we speak. And I, I really feel so bad that uh, I, I've known this person for, for quite a number of years, and he's really going through some serious hard times. And this you, is a terrible thing. Are you uh, are you thinking about maybe getting a couple of buddies together and see what you can do to help this guy out? I'm I've been I've been buying him subs, uh, bringing him uh, sandwiches, gotcha. and yeah, and and buying him coffee. And I even gave him my uh, a Tim uh, Tim Hortons uh, card so that he can go and buy himself a coffee or whatever he wanted. And, I'll tell you, but, 
uh, I appreciate you calling, Steve. You're definitely somebody uh, at their best, and um, really appreciate you uh, you honing in, you, you know, calling in and sharing. It's it's a, a really sad situation, and appreciate that you're helping your buddy out. I wish more people would do that. We were talking about um, how there's a particular, you know, number of people falling between in the cracks, between the cracks, so to speak, that, you know, are, are just shy of making enough money to survive and finding themselves homeless and, and, and not, not always because of mental health or addiction or crime or just down on their luck, lose their job. One woman found herself in a hospital, an expensive hospital stay, and uh, you know wasn't able to get back to work and for for weeks and weeks, and found herself sleeping behind a dumpster. You know, it's um... anyway. Here's the deal. The deal is we're talking about a a, a law, a bylaw that was trying to be passed uh, in Barrie uh, not so long ago. So uh, a couple of weeks back. Okay. So uh, not even a couple of weeks back, maybe a week or so. I read the article and I thought I was going to throw up. It goes like this. Barry's homelessness plan is being called a clear violation of basic human rights. Here's why. They were moving to ban residents from giving money, food, or water to homeless people on city property and actually made it illegal such that if you did so, you could have a huge, you'd end up with a huge fine. Fine could be as much as $5,000 for an individual and could face up to $100,000 to an organization. This is if you go out to help the people. You're walking down the street. Someone looks thirsty. You give them a bottle of water. Zap. Some cop. I'm not sure who what bylaw cop's going to do this, but some cop's going to come up and charge you, give you a ticket for $5,000, and what? Take the bottle of water away from the person? Like, I'm not sure how this flies, right? I'm not sure how this goes. But it certainly doesn't make sense to me. It's kind of like people have said it's similar to please don't feed the animals these aren't animals these are human beings that require the help so anyway what happened was a lot of smart people and a lot of committed people a lot of people at their best in barry stood up for this against this bylaw but i want you to have a quick listen to what the barry mayor had to say to kind of justify this leo we view that that work is being done with those who are vulnerable and unhoused is incredibly important work, uh, but needs to be done in the right place at the right time uh, so that our, our young people are also able to uh, access the parks and uh, the different services that are available in our in our beautiful community. Yeah, a bunch of crap, right? The, the poor kids are going to see the homeless guy in the corner. Come on, give me a break. Anyway, thankfully... Thankfully, people like my guest, she's coming up here in just a second. They 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 battled back against it. Uh, some people slept, uh, including her. She slept in front of uh, about 20 people slept in front uh, on the brickwork in front of City Hall and turned this thing around. And now they're not going to do that. Her name is Christine Naylor. She's the founder of Ryan's Hope. It's an organization and a member of Mums Stop the Harm. She calls it a small win because the bylaws galvanize support for the city's unsheltered population. She heads an organization called Ryan's Hope. It's a nonprofit organization in memory of their son, Ryan Naylor. May he rest in peace. Our mission is to advocate for and support people living with mental health, mental illness, substance abuse issues, and experiencing homelessness. Grassroots volunteer organization try to do our best to meet the individual needs of those who are serving. Uh, Miss Naylor, thank you so much for being here tonight and uh, being a part of this, Christine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Wow. What I, I mean, I, honestly, you know, like I, I read the article the first time and I said to my wife, this is like disgusting. Like, I, I don't know what province I live in. I do live in Ontario. Um, anyway, mm -hmm. what proposed, like, like <laughs> I'm, I'm speechless, Christine. I'm a broadcaster that's speechless. How could yeah. Barry even think? How could Barry even think of such a thing? Tell me the story. Uh, because of our leader uh, is is just a, a horrible. Uh, if you can call him a human being, I don't. I don't even know because I, I read the bylaw. Um, it came out on Sunday night, and I kept reading it over and over. I didn't get much sleep Sunday night because, yeah. for me, yeah, the food and water, and then it said above that that uh, it, it, you would be prohibited from giving anybody any type of item that would aid them with sleeping or taking shelter from the elements like who even writes something like that you know like to yeah, deny like, a human being from shelter of the elements i wonder if he's the same kind of person that would jump ahead of a older woman going through a door you know what i mean my mother mm -hmm. taught me to do it do things properly anyway um how quickly did the protest begin i mean you you read it and then I, i'm sure acted on it uh how about mm -hmm. your your colleagues and friends so yeah i just um i i just like knew monday like i didn't sleep at all and i'm like you know what i told my husband i'm going to city hall bringing a tent i'm sleeping there and i'm just going to put a call out and anybody that wants to join me can i i called out my, my most craziest i it's a joke my craziest mom friend um so that also lost her son because i knew that i could count on her and she'd be in and she's like, let's do it. And, uh, yeah, so um, we just went there with our tents. And, and then our friends that live outside, <laughs> I, I had to, like, let them know what was actually happening. And they're like, we're in. And for me, that's the big win that I want to celebrate. It was their first political action because the, these are a population of people that think that they have no power and that what they do, why, why should I participate in politics? It's not going to make a difference. But this time it did. They mobilized the whole country. Like, they got the attention of, like, national media and, uh, you know, Federal Human Rights Commission and just, like, people from across the country were sending support. There was um, a couple that tr made up kindness packs and drove two and a half hours to drop them off to us because they're like, no, we can't make kindness a crime. This is just wrong. Like, I think the whole country was outraged. Well, I know in Toronto, for, for what it's worth, I mean, in Toronto, I, my, my children and my grandchildren at different points in their life um, have supported organizations. There's several that were that are part of our community that go literally go out to the street, hand out, you know, water bottles, toques in the winter, socks, gloves, you know, the whole thing, right? Uh, can't imagine. It's an organization. They raise, I don't know, four or five million a year to do this in, in Toronto. Maybe not as much, something similar. Um, a lot of money. So, and there's several more like them. What, what, what was what was the thinking like? How does someone in office? I assume you're talking about your mayor. What 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 do you think was behind? What what drove him to such thoughts? He wanted us to stop doing what we were doing. So my organization, we are 100% volunteer run. I work full time, but I don't get paid for it. This is my calling now. That I always say I have a before life and an afterlife. I was an early child educator in my before life. And after Ryan died, this is what I do now. I, I, I care for the people in our community that are living in survival mode. And, like, we received no funding. Um, and so for us to, like, we do that every night. We do street outreach, going around feeding people, giving them what they need. If I was caught doing that, I would have been potentially facing a $100,000 fine. 
And it was, that was just the outrage. It's like this, they have become my family. My husband and I have been caring for, for our unsheltered population for, for over two years now. And they've become a family to us. We spend Christmas together and Easter and, and holidays. And uh, I'm the emergency contact for, for many of them, you know, at the hospital, because this is the family that they have. And so to say, we give out a water bottle to a member of our family was outrageous. Talking about uh, a bylaw that was trying to be passed in the city of Barrie in Ontario, just north of Toronto, to ban people from helping the homeless. Basically, don't feed the animals. And an organization of people help, you know, people just neighbors and such got together. Um, our guest this this evening, Christine Naylor, is one of those people. Got her buddies together to try to make a difference. She runs an organization called Ryan's Hope. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but it's all about you know trying to keep people from helping others, and then all of a sudden get a little bit of pushback, not a little bit of pushback. I don't want to put it down like that. I mean, Christina and her buddies did a lot of work to push this thing back, worked really hard. But listen to what the mayor had to say after he walks back, the stupid idea of making it illegal to help others. There should be zero fear out there that a bylaw officer or a a peace officer is going to come and ask you not to give water to somebody who needs it. Yeah, okay, so... I'm going to bring back Christine. Christine, then what did he mean if all of a sudden now he's walking it back? Give me an idea of, of what that was all about. Uh, I think it was that uh, uh, human rights lawyers and, and the federal government got involved and said, uh, no, this ain't happening in Canada. And so, you know, um, he had no choice but to, uh, like, pause the bylaw for now. So it's, it, that's why I say it's a small win. It hasn't gone away. They have referred um, the bylaw back to staff for rewording. So I'm sure that they're going to have lawyers looking at ways that they can um, word it so it doesn't sound so horrible and uh, so much like a human rights violation that it is. You know the old story, you know, if you take a pig and you paint it blue, it's still a pig, right? So yeah. it's, um, you know, it's, I, I don't know how you come at this. I'm not a legislative expert and, you know, you're probably much better at understanding this, but I don't know how you take this and make it smell nice. I just, it doesn't make sense to me. So listen, um, did they get pushed back? Did they get, have you heard about this project in Montreal where they turned parking meters into funds for the homeless? I did not. Okay, so real quick story, and then we'll get. I want to get. I want to learn more Mm -hmm. about Ryan. I I think Mm -hmm. we've spent enough time talking about such a ridiculous bill, and you certainly got my support to come on this show anytime to talk about it. If you need more, more pull for sure. But listen, in Montreal, in in Montreal, they took meters, parking meters, and Mm -hmm. uh, they they no longer call. They're no longer parking meters, but they accept cash, they accept coins, Mm -hmm. and all of those coins go to help the homeless. People love it. Mm-hmm. People love it, right? Anyway, yeah. what 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 more? What's what are we doing next, um, Christine in Barry for sure? What other solutions um, are have you and maybe some of your crew come up with to try to talk with uh, city council about? Why don't we do this instead? Yeah, <laughs> they're not very open to talking with anybody. They don't really want. They have their agenda, and their agenda is that we need to get homeless people out of Barrie or um, hide them away from public view because we're a tourist town and um, (laughs) they don't like to have to worry about, um, you know, people knowing that our whole country is in the middle of a housing crisis. 
if if we want to solve um you know the uh, homeless you know problem in Barrie, then what we need to do is house people and it actually is is less expensive to house people than it is to keep them homeless but okay, so it's so not he- about money it's about okay, power so- and control Right. So I'm going to jump in real quick and I'm going to tell you, I've spent, I spent uh, several decades as a street worker. Uh, the first uh, 10 years of my career, a uh, long, long time ago when, before we had electricity, um, I, you know, I, I, I met it, went out and met a lot of people who were living homeless, living rough uh, in abandoned homes and parks and such. And I got to tell you, Christine, to be honest with you, a lot of them didn't want to go inside. They didn't want a bed. They, you know, they mm-hmm. didn't want the help, so to speak. And so the, 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 that's true, but it's not true. So that's the thing. We always have this narrative that people are choosing to be outside. They are not choosing to be outside. When we don't give them any options that meet their needs, then uh. their only option is. So I'll tell you, at our camp out, we had couples that were able to sleep together in a tent, like husband and wife, for the first time in who knows, like years, because we don't have any couple, um, shelters for couples. And so right. he goes to his place for the night and she goes to her place for the night. Right. And there are couples, if you've, if you've experienced trauma or you're struggling yeah. with mental yeah. health issues, you don't want to be separated yeah. from your partner. And so there's a lot of uh, couples that will stay together outside just so that that's the only way they can be together. We also don't have any shelters that are pet friendly in Barrie. And so um, we've had several people that we know that we support that have pets and that's their family. And so they're not going to give up their pet just to get yeah. a bed inside. So I think that there's that narrative that they're choosing to be outside. They, they want this. Nobody wants that. We live in Canada. It's freaking cold in the winter. They want a home. They want a home just like you and me do. Yeah, some people just don't want to have a door locked behind them and such. But that's another conversation, and I think maybe we can have yeah. that another day, you and I. I mm-hmm. want to learn more about Ryan. Can you, can, mm-hmm. Are you okay talking about him? Sure, yeah. He was just a beautiful old wise soul i call my little leprechaun because he had these irish eyes that smiled and he was so proud of his irish heritage that he got a degree in celtic studies he was gifted he was a musician and he was highly educated he had a master's degree and then he got sick he got bipolar disorder and um, he tried all these different pharmaceutical medications but none of them worked um, except for the one that actually really helped him um, the physical side effect was it killed your white blood cells. And so the doctor had to take him off it. And so he found a drug that helped him. I say it was his medicine, but because he was denied a safe supply of that and had to go to the street to get it, he ended up dying of, of a toxic drug poisoning. And um, so that's why I advocate for safe supply because people use drugs. Lots of people use drugs for lots of different reasons. And if alcohol is your drug of choice, you have a, you know, like you're able to get it freely um, and safe supply of it and the same now with cannabis and then other drugs we moralize them and we criminalize the people that use them and so for eight years we struggled we fought and ryan fought because he was a great advocate for himself he was well spoken and uh, you know uh, we weren't able to get him the supports he needed there is a lot of support i always like to say on paper but when people actually go to access those supports they don't exist because the funding is not there for the amount of people that need them or the like criteria to get in is so like crazy that nobody actually qualifies for them. And so um, those are the issues that we struggled with trying to get support for Ryan. Um, And we weren't able to get him support that he needed. And so we lost him and he, he died one week before his 35th birthday. And so instead of 
um, celebrating. We buried our son on his birthday. I'm so sorry, and uh, I hope that you're able to get strength from his memory and strength from the help of uh, the help that you're providing others with. And uh, may you continue to have the, the the blessings and support that you need to to just keep fighting this this very difficult very difficult fight. I'm talking with uh, Christine Naylor. She's the co-founder of Ryan's Hope, and uh, her and her husband um, organized this organization to uh, to memorialize their son and to make a difference uh, in the world. Thank you so much, Christine, for being Thanks. here with us. What we're talking about right now is a gender-neutral washroom only serves to humiliate students. That's according to the story that we're talking about. And my buddy Leo, he just sent me a picture here from our studios here in BC. The washroom closest to our studio is in fact gender neutral or all gender is what it's referred to. And it's also for those that require handicap washrooms. So I guess it's for, we were joking, saying it's for everybody and anybody who needs a place to fit in. Well, this is a school, kindergarten to grade eight. Okay. So understand the age range. Uh, it's in Toronto. It's the downtown area of Toronto, um, down by uh, the Lakeshore area. Um, pretty, you know, up and coming area. Lots of um, uh, highly mobile families, and I guess you know, um, there. This is where their kids go. So it means that little boys and little girls, as well as tweens and girls and boys, share a toilet. Well, according to the report, the the results have been disastrous humiliating students and angering many parents. So give me a call right now or text me right now. we got a little bit of time to do this. So reach in and, and, and share your opinion. 877-399-9898 and tell me how this figures for you. So according to the Toronto Star reporter, her name is Isabel uh, Teotino, she revealed to readers this week that boys had been peeing on the toilet seats. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. You'll get a break soon here in a minute. You can go through up in a second. But listen, boys have been peeing on the toilet seats. It's not really funny. Sometimes in contests, students have been peeking under the stall, and parents have to send their daughters to school with wet wipes to clean the toilet seats before they're used. It's an issue. A grade one girl was flashed by a boy older than her, according to her father. A grade five girl was starting menstruation and had to figure it all out in the bathroom and at the time was filled with boys who had to watch her grab a tampon or a pad from the dispenser. It's just a new kind of trauma for, for girls especially, right? For boys, it's a whole nother opportunity to be silly and stupid. But for girls, it's really traumatic, especially if they're managing their first period or cramps or anything related to that part of their 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 chemistry and and. and you know, their, their physical needs, right? The school's named after a distinguished late Chinese-Canadian activist, John Lum, and they think of public service and scholarships, but now people are thinking about wet toilet seats every day of time they talk about this school. And alongside the big multi-stall genderless washroom, there's a small single separate washroom for use by other students, including Muslim girls who don't wish to remove their hijabs in front of boys. Well, across the city, Across Toronto, there are plenty of men's washrooms with urinals and then women's washrooms with nearly not nearly enough stalls. And then the female lineups, let's say you go to a ball game or something, the female lineups are two or three times the length of that for men or for the boys, right? So imagine what the lineups are going to be like outside these private standalone washrooms in the school. And, and, and frankly, 
I'm baffled by how such a decision could be made. I, I, I imagine that you could take a, a handicap washer and, um, Depending on where I am, I I use one of those if I'm on, on my scooter and I'm in a mall or something where I, I've got to be on my scooter because I can't walk. So, or, or anywhere, hotel or any place like that or large facility, airport. Anyway, but, you know, take a handicap washroom and call it all gender as well if you wanted. But to, 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 to discontinue the use of male versus female washrooms, like I get the politicizing behind it, the politics behind it and all that, although I'm not a political person at all. But gender-neutral washrooms for kids in that age range who don't quite get it all isn't a great idea. You know, the idea is they're supposed to offer a safe and private space for all students, but not for girls. They treat all students as identical, interchangeable units, but they're not. Boys and girls are different. They have different needs, especially when it comes to a bathroom. Whether you identify as a boy or you don't identify as a boy, that's a whole nother conversation. But the equipment is different, <laughs> regardless of what you call yourself. The equipment is different. So we have to allow for this. This is now becoming ground zero for boys to bully other boys and girls, especially for those to 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 bully those that perhaps have make a, a gender choice at a young age, and it's you know obvious and, and very public. It, this is just an opportunity for those silly boys that don't get it and are, are are not empathetic and understanding and acting at their best to pick on people. It's like you're delivering them by in a net. Stand outside the gender-neutral washroom or worse, stand inside the gender-neutral washroom and make fun of this one, that one, or that or such. Children go to the toilet because it's necessary. It is for all of us. They don't march in chanting retro hippie slogans, right? They don't, they're, they're not, they're, it's not, they're, they're not in there walking through it in any different way than anyone else. They need to use the bathroom. And, you know, there's all kinds of situations. Someone was saying in the article, she remembers the person who uh, wrote the article was talking about living in, in University of Toronto residence and they had co-ed washrooms, including showers. And guess what? They were empty. No one used them. The men would go over to the neighboring men's residence, and the girls would either go over to the residence, female residence at a different college, or to their mom's house or friend's house or somewhere else to take a shower. Right? It doesn't work. Sometimes it, you got to separate, you know, people from different situations and make them feel safe. Right? It's just something you have to understand. That it doesn't just fit for all. There's not a fit. There's not one size fits all, right? So it's nice to provide for those that need separate care, and that would be you know a handicap washroom or an all gender washroom. I don't know. What do you think? Give me a call here. What do you feel about this? About all gender washrooms, neutral washrooms, and such. Eight seven seven three nine 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 eight nine eight. You got a couple of minutes. Give me a call or send me a text. I want to know how you feel. I, I'm uncomfortable with it. I, you know, my my granddaughter and my grandson both go to public school, and you know they're they're in in grade school, and you know I can't imagine what it would be like for him to be in a washroom and you know having a girl come in and do it at the same time, right? Let's see if uh, if Nancy's here. She's from New Westminster, BC. Nancy, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. You so made me. a really good point yourself. Um, uh, 
Gender-neutral washrooms are fine as long as they are in a closed room with a locking door. I'm a disabled person as well. I'm visually impaired. For me to use a public washroom where I have to go into a big barn with many, many cubicles and try to find my way around is really difficult. So I love the single-use washrooms. I don't care if they're gender-neutral or not, as long as they are there for me, I can find my way around, or at times my husband comes in with me so that he can help me. But for kids in a school, especially elementary school, no, for all the reasons you have stated, they need to have their own little room where the girls go on one side and the boys go on the other. You know what, Nancy, thank you so much for calling. I'll tell your wife for two reasons. Number one, I appreciate you listening and calling in. And number two, I just want to make sure I'm not crazy. Here says says the therapist. I want to make sure I'm not crazy. I want to make sure that I'm not seeing this and and being and being you know not sensitive enough and not caring enough. So I really appreciate it. I think everyone needs a space. I'm all for finding a safe place for everyone. And thankfully for for thank thankfully for Nancy and people like her. There, you know, she has a routine that works for her. But the thought of it being an open door environment, like. <sighs> I can't get it. So I uh, really appreciate the call. We've got um, V from uh, Edmonton, but we're going to run out of time. But maybe we'll take the call real quick. V, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Uh, real, just about, say, uh, boys yeah, and girls should ahead. be in separate bathrooms, not together, because you know how boys are and how girls are. And no, it shouldn't be allowed. It's, I'm glad my kids are done with school. That's because <laughs> I know what my son was like and I know what my daughter was like. I appreciate your call. I appreciate okay, it very, thanks. very much. Thanks so okay. much. I, I'm, I'm with her. I'm, I'm with her. I think boys need to be where boys need to go. Girls need to know where girls need to go. And I'm not saying in terms of how you identify. I'm talking about what the equipment looks like. Right? It's all about what you're born with. And until such time as that's not there, You've got to kind of stand up or sit down, depending on what it is you're doing in the bathroom. But for kids to have to navigate this, they're not happy. And these poor ones, these, the, the littler ones, the, the ones that are getting bullied, what an environment. I mean, talk about a, way, a place to put a kid's head in the toilet and do a swirly. I don't know if anybody ever did that to you when you were in school. That's pretty awful. Great place to do it because no one's paying attention or watching. Right now, we're going to continue in our series. Um, we're talking about uh, depression and how to handle depression, some tips on handling depression. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about ne- negative thinking, challenging your negative thinking, and so on. Uh, but we also want to make sure that um, you recognize that there is a difference in your mood for lots of people. There is a big difference in your mood from summer to winter. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, <clears throat> but for me, Summer summer is much more uplifting, much easier to get up in the morning, uh, much easier to go outside in the evening. Uh, I find myself more physical, more active, and feeling a little less down when I do have down days uh, when the sun is out versus when it's snowy and miserable and cold outside. So there is a difference. There is something called seasonal effect disorder. Some people are affected by it. Others aren't. It depends on who you are, what you're made of, right? But um, it, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, as long as you know you know who you are, you know where you're fitting in, and you're feeling better you know, in the summer than the winter, or in fact, it doesn't affect you at all in the winter, okay. So it is what it is. But for a lot of people, they feel much better when the weather gets warmer, and, and that's normal. That's okay. So Challenging your negative thinking. Do you feel like you're powerless or weak sometimes? 
that bad things just happen and it's not much you can do about it. It's just like, no matter what happens, you kind of feel doomed, you know, kind of feel cursed or doomed. If you ever sort of said, oh, I'm cursed, you know, I'm doomed. I, whatever I do is never going to work out and so on, right? That's negative thinking, negative self-talk. Doesn't help your situation. It makes you feel helpless. It actually brings on a sense of depression. It puts a negative spin on everything, including the way you see yourself, by the way, and any expectations you may have of the future. You know, if you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't like what you see just because you're being super critical and whatever, okay. But to get down on it because you're a little, maybe a little overweight, a little underweight, not tall enough, not short enough, you don't have enough hair, you have too much hair. Like, I don't know who you are, but I'll tell you, in my life, I've seen some really beautiful people who look at themselves and don't like what, I mean, what I think are beautiful people. Okay. So in, in retrospect, in fairness, it's how I perceive them. Right. But I get to share because it's my show. So I'm telling you, I see beautiful people who see themselves not like that. And I see people who are maybe not as physically beautiful, but see themselves such because as such, because they, they see the inside. And for the inside, a lot of people feel good about who they are because they know they're good people on the inside. They're not so much worried about what it is going on on the outside. So your negative thinking, your negative self-talk has everything to do with the kind of day you're going to have. It has everything to do with whether you're going to be at your best or not, right? And these thoughts, when they overwhelm you, it's hard. It's important that you remember it's a symptom of your depression. If you're feeling depressed, that irrational pessimistic attitudes is part of what we call a cognitive distortion. It's not realistic. When you really examine them, they don't really hold up, right? But even so, it can be tough to give up. It can be tough to give up that negative self-talk. It's hard to break out of that pessimistic mind frame by telling yourself, okay, I'm just going to think positively. It doesn't work like that. You really have to challenge your thinking. You really have to. So what I tell people in my practice and when I coaching anybody, I tell them the same thing. And it goes like this. You need if you're having a negative self, a negative thought, a negative self thought, you know, a negative thought, your self talking is, is has a negative spin on it. You need to find something, at least one thing or two that it gives you a positive balance. It needs to be a, we need to at least balance the scale. And by doing that, one hopes that it will open up your opportunity to see your world in a mindful way in the moment. You see their world. So part of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, Charlie, Bob, Tom, CBT. Part of that whole concept of CBT is looking in the clouds and finding some sunshine. So even if you got something negative going on in your life, it's really important to find a way to put a positive spin on it in order to keep you from getting into a depressive state, which then becomes very difficult to break out of. So all this all or nothing thinking, right, is another thing. Looking at things in black and white categories, it's either this way or this way, and there's no middle ground. That also can lead to you feeling like you're a failure, to you feeling like you're not accomplishing things, to feeling like you're not, you know, adding up, you're not, you know, stepping up to be who it is you think you need to be, right? All or nothing thinking. That's part of ways that we get to a depressive state of mind when it's you know, we, we talk ourselves into depression often. Some people have depression because it's part of their chemical imbalance or perhaps it's, it's you know, 
brought on by uh, some medication. Sometimes med medication your doctor gives you for one thing or another. Depression is one of the side effects. You need to pay attention to that. But if you're generally someone who's depressed, let's talk about ways to get out of it. One of the ways to get out of it is find some sunshine in a dark place, number one. Number two, stop telling yourself everything is horrible when it's probably not. may not be great, according to whatever you think great should be. But I'm sure from, you know, generally talking to people for years and years and years that usually when you look at stuff and we break it down together, it's not as big a deal when you look at it with the help of somebody who's helps you guide your helps guide you through the process. So generalizing from a single negative experience and expecting it to hold true forever. Every time I go to that restaurant, I freak out because they treat me so poorly. I walk away feeling like I'm a piece of garbage and blah, blah, blah. Every time I go to that restaurant, well, then when you start drilling down in the conversation, you find out that one time when they went to a restaurant, the wait, the waiter or the wait person wasn't treating them properly, made them feel bad, was, you know, said a couple of ignorant things, I suppose. And now every time I go to that washroom, now every time I go to that to that restaurant. No, it's not every time, right? And your mental filter, ignoring positive events and focusing only on the negative, like that, your filter, like it, it, how you see things, the kind of glasses that you wear, so to speak, the lenses, we use that term, the lenses by which you see the world, through which, through which you see the world. You see them positively or negatively or something in between. Don't diminish the positive because you can only come up with negative situations. These are ways that you help yourself be jumping to conclusions, right? Always having a negative thought of how things are going to turn out. It doesn't work like that all the time. I promise you, right? I promise you that if you start thinking more positively about the things in your life, you're going to feel your, your, your thoughts and your depressive negative feelings will suddenly start to go away a little bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more. Not overnight, not overnight, not immediately, but it's up to us to do what we need to do to turn that frown upside down, right? Better than that. I know you are. It's just a matter of letting yourself know, okay, I wasn't the fastest on the team today, but you know what? I finished. I worked really hard. I ran the race and I did what I had to do. You know, I might not have been the brightest person in the room in a, in a, in a discussion at work, but, you know, at least I shared my opinions and I was honest and straightforward and I talked about the things that were important to me. You need to find, we need to help you find, you need to find the sunshine in the dark day. And that's how you do it. You challenge your negative thinking, keeping a negative thought log, balancing your negative and positive thoughts so at least they're even, if not better. So my friends, one of the ways you help yourself through depressive thinking is to start thinking more positively and not getting so wrapped up in the depression that you don't see any way out. And that's part of the problem for so many people is you get wrapped up in it and you can't see your way out. And that by itself is hugely depressive. So when we come back next week, we're going to talk some more, some additional tips on positive thinking and making the best uh, best out of your day that you possibly can, being at your best. When we come back, we're going to talk to some people about the Calgary flood and uh, how that helped the whole community come back and be at their best. So uh, about 10 years ago, June 19th, 10 years ago, 2013, uh, the city of Calgary had a unprecedented amount of rain. And uh, as a result, the famous Calgary flood. 
So the impact of 18 intense hours of rain is frankly still being felt today, according to the people that lived through it, people that I've talked to. Uh, a guy named Aaron Stainer, he's a resident of Sunnyside, here, which was one of the sub suburbs that got hit uh, pretty hard. He remembers the events of the flood like it was yesterday. He says it was like uh, the early afternoon, early evening. We were at a rap party at a Hillhurst Sunnyside Community Association for our kids' soccer club. And I was there with my daughters and my wife, he says. We were off-site somewhere. My wife was off-site somewhere else. And then all of a sudden, a huge twister. All of a sudden, he says, being a huge Twitter user, that's when we started seeing the evacuation orders kind of coming over Twitter, he goes on to say. There's all this chatter going through the gym that they've been sitting in, right? Like being like, we've got to evacuate, we've got to evacuate. Um, and, you know, this is something that they saw kind of over the news, right? The high amount of raid led to the cancellation of Stainer's uh, charity golf tournament earlier that morning. And at the time, he didn't feel as though it was really something that much out of the ordinary, not according to the article, not such a big deal, right? It wasn't such a big deal. It wasn't like, you know, wasn't going to be the disaster that it turned out to be. So as the rain picked up, though, throughout the day, it became very, anything but ordinary, being very clear that this was not going to be an ordinary day, an ordinary rainy day in Calgary. So uh, he says it was, uh, what's he say? It was like, it was like a slow boil. And then you really realize that how bad it was going, potentially getting on all of a sudden you're seeing, um, People tweeting out, yes, uh, sunshine, you got to get out right now, get out right now, according to the tweets. This is going, this fellow Stainer going on to talk. As the water level started to rush towards Calgary, the city issued a flood warning, activated the municipal emergency plan, declared a state of local emergency, and gave an evacuation notice for any of the communities that might have been at risk. Well, at its peak, the flow rate of the Bow River was eight times its normal rate. So can you imagine, right? Out of nowhere, boom. I mean, the whole thing lasted, what did we say here? The whole thing lasted 18 hours. Not that long, man. It's not that long if you think about it, right? If you were, by the way, if you lived through it, if you were around, uh, we were living in Calgary during the flood 10 years ago, want to hear from you for sure. 877-399-9898. Give us a call or a text for sure. Love to hear from you. Want to hear what the experience was like for you firsthand, right? What was it like while you were living there? Well, the story goes on like this. So um, the elbow of the river was 12 times its normal rate at the Glenmore Dam, and it was seven times its normal rate. Citywide disruptions uh, accrued with 34,000 locations being left without electricity, more than 50 bus routes being canceled, and 1,600 people registering for support on just the first day were some of the many disruptions. So part of the spin on this is how the Calgarians got together and worked together as a community, <clears throat> really looked at being at their best, right? Uh, in total, about 80,000 people were evacuated over the course of the flood according to the city of Calgary. Well, the 10-year anniversary, which was just past year, June the 20th, 2023, Tim Henley was a professor in sociology at Mount Royal University. Tim Haney, I'm sorry. Professor of sociology at Mount Royal University. He's concluded or conducted research on multiple different natural disasters and how they seemingly follow him everywhere he's gone. Talk about a guy with a dark cloud over his head, pun, pun. 877 399 
888-900-9898. Want to hear from you. Were you around Calgary during the flood or know someone who was? I'd love to hear the story firsthand. So he goes on to say, I, my partner and I lived in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. And when we went through Hurricane Katrina, that made me sort of interested in disasters. He goes on to say, we've also kind of had this history of our personal lives being affected by disasters. Our wedding, this fellow goes on to say, right? Um, Tim Haney, the professor. Our wedding in Wisconsin was disrupted by a pretty powerful tornado. And then our son was born during the, 2000, the 2013 flood in Calgary and was home uh, was a home birth because of the flood. So this guy and his partner seem to be around, you know, natural disasters. For some reason, it doesn't seem to turn their frown upside down. It seems to, uh, it doesn't turn their smile upside down. They seem to be able to push through it. As the Calgary flood ripped through the city, Haney quickly jumped on to researching the impacts of the flood shortly after the storm would pass. So with a team of students, he went out and surveyed people in all 26 neighborhoods affected by the, the storm. And he asked them questions like, where did you go when you evacuated? And when did you come back? Well, what sort of damage did you come back to? What were your financial losses from the flood or other losses? He would go on to say. Well, you know, but also a couple of really broad questions about how going through a flood might have changed their views on the environment and so on. Their views on politics how it made them think about where they were, uh, where they were going to live the next, uh, the next, you know, when they were planning next, if the flood would affect you. Like, I don't know about you, but would you think about living in a different kind of environment? Um, you know, and I wouldn't th see Calgary as a place that I would be concerned about something like a flood. I could see living on the coastal waters. You know, I would love to live in Victoria or in Halifax or somewhere right on the, on the, on the, on the ocean, right on the water, or some big lake somewhere, maybe in Kelowna. But, you know, anywhere that you're near an ocean or a live body of, of water like that, you have to be concerned about things like tornadoes and floods and, and you know, tsunamis if you're in that part of the world. So, you know, thinking about where you're going to live, when you think about where you're going to live, do you ever think about any potential national natural disaster? 877-399-9898. Love to hear from you. Do you think about when you're moving somewhere? Well, I don't know, honey. It's nice be nice beachfront property, but if this storm kicks up, we're going to get flooded out. Do you think like that? I don't know. I think I do. I think I do. I, I'm a bit of, because I've got anxiety disorder. One of my, one of my concerns is the future, right? I get a little hung up on the, on the future. If I don't take care of myself and, and keep my mental health in check. Right. So I'd be thinking about where I'd want to live, but anyway, um, some neighborhood, some neighborhoods, most neighborhoods, frankly, got together. They became uh, really, they, they worked very hard together to to come up with a uh, a means by which they could, um, you know, kind of survive and do something important and and work together as a community to make a difference. And it seems to have really had a lot to do with um, how Calgary how Calgarians have you know sort of grown through this to become even stronger and the community's even stronger. And you know if you go on through a uh, here we go. If we, if you go on to understand that there were lots of people that were uh, left out in the dark, literally, and really had nowhere to go, but they went to their neighbors and somehow got through it together, right? Somehow got through it together. So um, it's interesting to understand how we do in times of disaster, how that brings us together as a community, you know, how we then have to find some sense of normal, right? 
Um, and an example of that would be during normal times, you'd use your used to looking out your window and see, you know, the same two kids walking to school together every morning. And then all of a sudden you look outside and there's no one out there. And the cities are dark. Like we saw during the pandemic, it was really eerie. I used to drive back and forth to the studio downtown for a while till we got lo locked out and not, you know, had to work from home. And, you know, the, the streets of downtown Toronto were just bare during the day. You wouldn't normally see that. Anyway, very interesting situation. I'm really happy that uh, people have band together and made something special come out of it and made a much stronger special community as a result of, uh, of such a disaster. Listen, I have somebody on the hold here. His name is Davies in Cal Victoria, but was in Calgary during the flood. And we're going to go to him and uh, check check in with him and have a chat about his experience. But uh, real quick, I want you to have a listen to what a Calgarian recounts uh, during the uh, during the flood, how they saw heavy machinery being transported, uh, transporting people and supplies. But then she saw something and it was really weird. Have a listen. He told me his forklift was floating down the river. I had people phoning me crying, thinking that he was gone, you know, because his forklift was there, it was running, and there was no dirt. Yeah, so Dave in Victoria, how you doing tonight, Dave? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, buddy. Thanks so much for calling. I really appreciate it. So I can imagine, can you imagine, right, a, a forklift being carried down the floodwaters and no one in it. Um pretty spooky i'm sure there was other things to see you were in calgary during the flood uh give me an idea what it felt like while you were there well i lived in a place i was fortunate that was uh not facing the floodwaters but i had a client that lived in the floodwater area and they called me up on the sunday morning and said hey we need some help here they had been they knew the waters were coming so saturday afternoon they stuck around moving everything upstairs trying to get it dry trying to keep it out of whatever was coming by the time they left their home saturday night they walked out and were in water hip waist in their own backyard and got picked up by a boat in their back alley and taken off and the next day as the waters are starting to come back down they reached out to me and so i got a hold of a friend and got a pump and came over and helped pump out their basement but what was really neat for me, and, and I don't want to take away from the people losing property and sleep and everything else, um, I went back first off and helped sludge out stuff from their basement, haul out all the garbage and mud and the soaked goods and everything else. But uh, our church had a youth group planned to go out the very next weekend on a big camp. That we just totally changed what we were doing with them. Instead, we just took them around in groups in Calgary and uh, just went and dug out sludge, hauled mud and uh, pictures and everything out of people's basements uh, just because they're at a loss. What can they do? It's just such a big task. It was a really neat experience for these young people, but uh, one house really, I haven't forgotten it. He backed right onto the Elbow River, uh, an older gentleman who I found out later was a VP from a, a major oil company, a worldwide oil company. And I was yeah. talking to him as the kids were just finishing up, and I said, hey, I'm so sorry for your loss. And he said, I'm not. I was like, pardon me? He says, I have never in my life felt what I feel right now. Um, this sense of community of, of strangers showing up and cleaning out my basement, and they don't know me, and he said, I've never felt this before. Now, he financially comes from a point of view where it wasn't as devastating to him, 
But it's interesting that a man of that kind of means was touched by the community service of people just strangers coming in and going through their basement, digging out anything and everything. Lost a lot of sleep, a lot of hours put into it. But um, So I, I don't come from it from having lost a lot of financially in it. But I did gain a lot from the experience of working with these young people, uh, serving my neighbors, doing what I can to help out others. That's amazing. Let me um, ask you, since I've got you here, while you were there, um, since since then, you think this is something that Calgarians can expect to ever experience again? Is this like a every hundred years this is going to happen or any of the experts ever talk about it? Or do you believe that this is a, this was a kind of a one off? Oh, everybody's got an opinion on that kind of stuff, and politicians will always spin that however they can for their own good. So I don't know. I can't predict the weather. I don't think anybody can. Yeah, I, I mean, that. it was one of those, it was a perfect storm, right? It was There was yeah. a lot of snow in the mountains, and the rain, it's not that all the rain landed in Calgary. It's like a, a bunch landed in Calgary, but a whole lot of it hit the mountains and just melted all that snow at once. And so it all came from the mountains. It wasn't that it all was falling in Calgary at once. What took you from Calgary to Victoria? Oh, I got married. To uh, <laughs> That'll do it. I got married and we decided, you know what? Forget a winter in Canada. Let's do it in Victoria now. Yeah, no kidding. I'll be out there in a couple of weeks. So I'm literally looking forward to being out, out on the coast and uh, hanging out with you and your neighbors for sure. Uh, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't thank you. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say it's beautiful and the roads are great for my motorbike. So. I'm happy. There you go. Now that's the answer. Here's a guy that wants to ride his bike all year round. That's perfect, perfect reason, Dave. <laughs> Thanks so much for calling in, buddy. I really appreciate you it bet. and uh, uh, you? sharing with us here. Um, great, great, uh, great caller. I really appreciate uh, him being a part of uh, part of the show and uh, calling in and sharing with us. Um, you know, I, I, had, I just want to share something that I had someone send me a text on the story that we talked about a little while ago about gender neutral gender neutral bathrooms, and they go on to say that I don't understand what a gender neutral bathroom is meaning me a boy in the bathroom and a girl can just walk in no they're lockable yeah but they're all in the same unit they're all they're, a gender neutral washroom in, in these cases is they're not in the there are individual lockable stalls in a room that has multiple stalls according to what i read according to the article that i was reading so uh appreciate the uh, update but i'm not sure i was uh, missing the mark at all so real quick we've got some a little bit of time uh left here i was really uh, <clears throat> hopeful that we could uh, have a conversation about the uh, Calgary um, flood. And uh, in fact, we were able to, uh, thankfully, Dave called in, but left us a little bit of time. I want you to understand that an hour of extra sleep each night can lead to better eating habits. It's really important that I've had people call me and talk to me. Everybody says the same thing. I, Yona, I have a part, hard time sleeping. You know, whether whether I'm dealing with somebody in my mental health and addiction practice or whether I'm coaching somebody, uh, you know, related to uh, performance coaching, either athletics or other forms of performance, or in fact, in business, people just are having a hard time sleeping. So if you can find yourself a way to sleep better, then that's going to lead to better eating habits. So uh, the idea is that research shows, for example, that consistently poor sleep can set the stage for weight gain as well. So if you're not sleeping well and you're putting on pounds, it has something to do with a combination of your eating habits and your sleeping habits, right? So a few nights of short sleep reduces levels of GLP, uh, GLP-1, which is a hormone 
that um, signals satiety uh, um, satiety in, in men. Sleep loss, in other words, when you're satisfied. In men, sleep loss leads to a spike in um, a, a hormone that stimulates hunger. So it, sleep and eating go together. And we tell everybody, I tell everybody that I deal with in, in any of the practices that I work in or any of the facilities that, that I run, you know, you need to eat well, sleep well, and get some exercise every day, right? Every day. So I, I think that it's really important to understand that when we don't sleep right, it's not just a matter of, oh, you know, I feel like I just had a poor night sleeping, right? And um, I think it's really important is that you recognize that it all has to go together, right? And it's very important to understand that you, 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 it's, if, you're, if you're not sleeping well, then your digestion and your appetite are affected. And if you're not working out on top of that, then you're really setting yourself up for a really, um, a really poor uh, physical health regime that's difficult to dig your way out of. So it's important that you recognize that if you eat, if sleep better, it will improve your eating. So, for example, if you're getting up at an early, uh, getting up early in the morning, and you're getting ready for work or ready for school or ready for your day, and you haven't slept really well, then you'll find that your appetite isn't quite as good as it is when you've had a full night's sleep and you wake up refreshed. So too, if you oversleep, you tend to not wake up feeling as hungry as you might have because there's a period of time in everybody's body where their hunger and their desire to be satiated through the hunger um, has periods of time throughout the day. Your body gets trained after a while, right? To recognize when you should eat, when you should sleep, and when you should be busy doing whatever that is, the physical part of your day. So very important to, to recognize that eating and sleeping, they go hand in hand. And if you're concerned about weight gain or weight loss, it's all part, you, you have to talk to your doctor and make sure that you're not uh, missing the whole concept around uh, positive and proper sleep as it relates to your diet, because it goes together. And I wouldn't have thought so, but after reading the material, I'm sort of learning more and more all the time about uh, how the connection of, of uh, being satisfied with your meals leads to a better day, and so too with good, good, sufficient sleep. And by the way, not everybody needs the same amount of sleep, right? Some people need six, seven hours, five, six hours. Some people need eight. Some people do well on four or five. I, I don't know how they do that. I can't. I need eight or nine for sure, 10 if I can get it. 